Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, focused on applying Mazda's customer-centric approach for vehicle design to car buying and servicing in order to create an experience centered around the customer. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com. This is Charlotte Talks. I'm Mike Collins on the local news roundup. After years of saying no, the General Assembly begins the move toward Medicaid expansion. Charlotte City Council decides to ask for four-year terms in office. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley seeks another office, despite having said she wouldn't run against her old boss. She's in the race for president. The city of Charlotte is examining CMPD radar guns for accuracy. The quest for more toll lanes on I-77 moves to the next step. And you might see the largest bond request in state history on the November ballot, $3 billion for CMS. Here to talk about those stories and more is WFAE education reporter Ann Doss Helms. Good morning. Welcome back. Good morning. Shamaria Morrison is here. She's also an education reporter and other, she reports on other things as well for uh, WCNC-TV. Good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. Eli Portillo is senior editor for news and planning here at WFAE. It's the first time I've had a chance to say that, Eli. Welcome to the station. Welcome to the program. And you got it right. Thanks. Yeah. And Eric Spanberg is managing editor of the Charlotte Business Journal. Good to see you again, Eric. Good morning, Mike. I'm starting with you. The uh, Affordable Care Act uh, <laughs> offered states a way to expand those covered under Medicaid with costs covered by the federal government. North Carolina was among several Republican-controlled states that refused that offer, but slowly the ice has been melting on that attitude. <laughs> several Republican states have now said yes to expanding Medicaid. And last year, the North Carolina House and Senate leaders both indicated our state might follow suit this week. The North Carolina House overwhelmingly moved to pass an expansion bill, 92 to 22, and it's something that House Speaker Tim Moore told Fox 8 in Raleigh was the right move. Well, I think it's a significant step in moving the ball forward because the House would be affirmatively taking action to, to, in, to pass the expansion bill. So was this a preliminary vote or was, the, was this the final House vote so that the bill now goes to the Senate, Eric? This was the full House vote. Uh, I think what we're going to see is what we heard at the Charlotte Regional Business Alliance a few weeks ago when Speaker Moore and Senate President Berger were here. Now they have to sort out their differences. And the differences are that the Senate and principally uh, Senator Berger want uh, things like they they want different uh, policies on certificates of need, telehealth and nurse practitioners in in terms of what they can do. And so that's what's got to be ironed out. It it may go back and forth, Mike, but I think ultimately this is going to pass this session. So over the years, the reason we haven't expanded Medicaid and the reason, well, the reason given in North Carolina has been that uh, although the federal government is funding the bulk of this, there was no guarantee in their minds that they would always do that. And Medicaid was already unaffordable for the state, they thought. But things have changed. That was a roadblock they now think they can overcome. Tim Moore spoke with Tim Boyum from Spectrum News on his podcast last week and said that uh, containing costs was essential to expansion. And under the formula of this new bill, the federal government is providing the majority of the funding, 90 percent. That is an affordable piece right there. If it was two thirds, one third, it would bust the budget. So the law, the bill that we have spells out that the expansion happens so long as and provided that the feds continue to pay the 90% and the state pays 10%. So that, that's, that's one of the key components. 
Wasn't that always the deal from the get-go? They were going to pay 90%? Well, there was uncertainty about whether the 90% would always be paid. But I think an, an easy observation or question, Mike, is why not do this from the beginning? You've missed out on 10 years of having 90% uh, funding. You could have you could have, uh, you could could have have set this up that way from the beginning, but they just fought it and fought it. So the way this bill is written then would roll back. They would turn down Medicaid. They would turn the spigot off if the federal government turned the spigot off. Is that, what, is that how it's written? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That, yes. So Medicaid expansion, by the way, is supported by 70.3% of state residents, according to a poll last week by Meredith College. 60% of those people come from all parts of the demographic, demographic and political spectrum. Can we presume that Governor Cooper, who has a long history of supporting this, fundamentally because he believes in it and also because it's part of Obamacare, that he will sign this in its present form? Yes, I think he's going to sign it uh, pretty much no matter what. Uh, the main reason being, Mike, that you have 600,000 people who will now have health coverage in North Carolina who don't at the moment, including 60,000 in Mecklenburg County. So uh, that was my next question. How many people will benefit from this? So how, how far away are we from uh, final passage and actual signing and for this to actually go into effect? That's hard to say because uh, we don't know how much of a fight uh, the, the House is going to put up against the Senate or vice versa. Uh, as I say, last last year, we thought this was going to pass. Last year, I believe it passed on the Senate side and the House didn't take it up. So uh, they are going to reach consensus. But how quickly? We just don't know. And as I understand it, the hospitals around the state are very much in favor of this because they uh, are in line to make billions of dollars as a result. Would that be accurate? That would be accurate. Also, Mike, the business community is behind it. You now have 20 chambers of commerce around the state that have said, yes, we want this to happen. So it, it is inevitable, but it's all a question of timing. It seems like a win-win-win. And for 10 years, as you point out, we have been turning down federal money that we're paying the federal government to give us back. And we've been saying no to it. So maybe this is a good thing all around. We'll see. Uh, Charlotte City Council had a busy Monday night this week dealing with several issues, including a decision on terms. This is not the first time that City Council has come up uh, with the idea that they should expand their terms from two to four years. That's what they want to do, right, Eli? Yeah, they've talked about this since I've been in Charlotte uh, since the late 2000s and before that as well. Uh, you know, they always say we need more time to settle in and learn our jobs. It's inefficient to run every two years. We need four-year terms and also staggered terms where not everyone is up for election every time. So more like the Senate, uh, where you have a third of the Senate, U.S. Senate, that goes up for election each time. They voted to advance that idea uh, today, or I'm sorry, this week on Monday, there will be a public hearing next month on March 13th. That's the next step. And then we'll have uh, most likely a referendum in November where uh, people will get the final say on whether to extend four-year terms and move to a staggered uh, system and also add an eighth district seat. So adding another representative to reflect the growing population here in Charlotte. At-large uh, council member and mayor pro tem uh, Braxton Winston says four-year terms are needed because of some of the things that you just talked about, uh, time requirements posed by issues like affordable housing and transit. I think you need institutional memory. You also need uh, a time to, un to get your head around some of these very complex in uh, issues and not having to run every two years he says, will provide that time. 
This is work that continues to get interrupted. This structure, four-year term, with a stagger, allows for continuity. So Braxton Winston was among the six people who voted yes on council. Republican Tariq Bakari was among four members who said no, including some Democrats, because there are only two Republicans on city council. Bakari says this is not a burning issue among voters. Never once has that come up. No one has ever said, you know what, Tark, the thing I want is less touch points to be able to hold you accountable. <laughs> Mayor Vial Lyles said that the six to four vote is far from a mandate uh, by the council to take to the voters. And she said it isn't a good look. Eli, is she right? Well, Mecklenburg commissioners tried something uh, like this in 2015. They put a referendum on the ballot for four-year terms, and it lost by a two-to-one margin. So, you know, there's not really uh, necessarily a mandate if you look back at past precedent. Also, six to four is only a one-vote margin because the city council needs six votes to advance anything. So you're not really going to the voters and saying, hey, we all think this is a good idea. Um, At the same time, as someone who's watched this city council for years, I've seen on big issues like transit and the unified development ordinance, there is kind of this, you know, the first year new council members come in, they kind of do relearn a lot of the things that the old council members knew. And you get a lot of repetitive, hey, what are we doing here? What is this plan, et cetera? So I can definitely see that. I think it's an issue where there are people on city council who feel really strongly that they need the four-year terms. It might be tough to translate that into Uh, public support with the public saying, yeah, we agree with you. And and we saw a little bit of what you're talking about this summer with the cat situation when it was revealed that RATP Dev runs the buses, hires the drivers, negotiates the contract and not cats. And some uh, members of council were caught off guard by that because we haven't negotiated that contract in about a decade and they weren't on council back then. And I just I think it's worth noting that the Charlotte Mecklenburg School Board has had those rotated four year terms since the 90s when they went to district representation and kind of to Tark Kari's point, I don't think it's anything that people are upset about of all the things they are upset with with CMS. On the other hand, you could say is the school board your example of more efficient government. It, it seems to work reasonably well for them and not be particularly controversial. So on Monday night, as the council was considering and voted yes to extending their terms, which will later come to a vote by the public, and in fact they are holding a series of public hearings to get your input on this, the public's input on these uh, term extensions, and uh, and they will probably go to a, a proposal in the ballot in, in November as a result. But that same evening, they approved uh, an eighth district seat, adding that council, adding that seat to council which would bring the total number of uh, council members to 12, with the mayor casting the tie-breaking vote. Why the need for an additional member? Well, I think that's an interesting question, and I'll let Eli pick it up from here. But the Citizens Committee that that studied this actually recommended pairing back one of the at-large districts and keeping it at 11. So there is going to be, I think, a lot of discussion about the wisdom of having 12 because you would have so many ties and the mayor's tie-breaking vote typically has been a very rare uh, thing and so this would change that dynamic well Eli, this gives more power to this gives more power to the mayor doesn't it was that their absolutely intent? does absolutely does it, does. was that their intent no well, i don't think so go ahead and Eli. even even with a 12 person um situation i don't think you'd have tiebreakers that often you know uh, i don't know how many six six votes we'd get 
but mm-hmm. um, you know, we did have a five-five vote this week uh, about whether the city should purchase elect all electric or hybrid diesel buses. And the mayor cast a tie-breaking vote on Monday. That could certainly happen more. At the same time, when you talk to council members, uh, folks like Luana Mayfield have said, "Hey, you know, look at how big our population has uh, has grown." You know, we're representing more than 100,000 people each year in the districts. We, you know, can't keep in touch with all our constituents. Another person would help lessen that load. So, um, you know, I think that you could make arguments either way. They also recommended in that um, committee, Eric mentioned, moving to nonpartisan elections, Mm -hmm. which uh, is one that I'll say the council has not run towards and has not uh, move to embrace <laughs> with all possible speed. Although, as I understand it, most municipalities in North Carolina run uh, on nonpartisan uh, elections for their councils. Um, have they decided where or have they suggested where this additional district might be? I haven't seen a specific suggestion on that. Um, they do reapportion the district, you know, as uh, new populations come in, much like you get at the national level with um, the House district and at the state level with legislative districts. So some of it would be based on where population has grown the most in the city. So in the minute I have left before we have to move on, uh, um, voters have traditionally said no uh, to term expansions, but council does not have to put this to a referendum. Are they likely to? And in if it goes on the ballot in November, would voters also be voting on this additional district? So they could make this change without going to the voters. They could just vote and do it, amend the city charter, but it would only take 5,000 signatures on a petition to force it onto a ballot. So if city council makes this change without going to voters first, voters have the right to come back and get a petition and say, hey, you need to let us vote on this. Well, that um, ex- Tark Bakari has already said, I will make sure we get 5,000 signatures if you don't let me or if you don't do this, so we'll have a referendum on this. A little more about council when we come back, particularly about the 1% sales tax for transit. It's Charlotte Talks on WFAE. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte. Using Mazda's customer-centric approach to cars to create a car buying and servicing experience where the customer is the center of their business. More at mazdaofsouthcharlotte.com. It's Charlotte Talks and the Local News Roundup on listener-funded 90.7 WFAE and WFAE.org. I'm Mike Collins. We're here with Eli Portillo and Andos Helms from WFAE News, Shamaria Morrison from WCNC-TV, and Eric Spanberg from the Charlotte Business Journal on Monday. In addition to all the other things we've been talking about, council voted to ask state legislators to increase taxes to pay for transportation improvements. We need permission to put a 1% sales tax for transit on the ballot. And this comes after House Speaker uh, uh, Tim Moore kind of rejected out of hand Charlotte's transit plan because it doesn't do enough, he says, for roads and cars. When the mayor was on this program in January, she said at the time that she had hoped to speak with Tim Moore and others in Raleigh, listen to their objections, explain our needs, and then move the ball forward. So when she was on the show this week, I asked her if she'd had those conversations yet. Getting an appointment with the speaker is not a simple process, but we have had conversations in this office with his office staff And I hope that we'll be able to do that in the next several um, weeks. 
I find that interesting that the economic mm. en- the mayor of the economic engine mm. of the state can't get on the House Speaker's calendar. Uh, but they did have. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm did. just wincing, Mike, as you're as you're playing that that clip. I mean, between what the mayor said and what Speaker Moore said when he was here, and don't forget, Senator Phil Berger said uh, we would have to look very closely at the prospect of raising taxes anywhere if this were to come up. This uh, feels like a a very very long shot. I guess would be the euphemistic way of putting it. Yeah, Rolling and I also ball. go ahead. That's all right. Oh, I was just going to say the language that they approved. Um, to me, looks like kind of boilerplate language where they're, you know, going to continue working to uh, find a solution. I didn't see anything that really firmly says we're going to go and get it this legislative session. I will personally be very surprised if they actually move to get it on the referendum, uh, get a referendum on the ballot, especially because if they are pushing for uh, four-year terms, and and those changes that could be really unpopular and do you really want to put your prize transit sales tax ballot on that same uh referendum on that same ballot with something that might get a big campaign to oppose it that seems like a an iffy tactic yeah and of course the clock is ticking on this because federal infrastructure money is being uh, divvied out to places all over the country uh, there may not be that much left by the time we get around to it. Uh, is there any way to fast track this? Anything that we could do to fast track this with well, the legislature? Just to throw one other thing in there, Mike, before you even worry about the legislature, uh, based on what I saw at the city retreat uh, last month, uh, they're not, uh, they, let's say they have not reached consensus, I guess would be the nicest way to put it. So uh, there is always a way to fast track things, but when the speaker is not, uh, taking the calls of the mayor quickly, it does not look like a priority at the moment. So we'll see. And she did say on the program that they're still talking to the railroad about the red line, the railroad being Norfolk Southern, because people in the northern part of the county have said they're not going to vote yes on this unless they get rail out of this because they got nothing out of the previous projects. And I think Norfolk Southern has its hands full right now in Ohio. So we'll see what happens there. In January, uh, planners at Charlotte Mecklenburg Schools listed 40 Four zero construction projects to be put on the ballot this November at a cost of just under $2.9 billion. That would make it the largest bond referendum uh, of its kind in state history. But this week, Interim Superintendent Crystal Hill advised the CMS board to drop 10 of the 40 projects on that wish list. But even then, the cost is likely to be more than the initial $2.9 billion. These projects have an estimated value of $2.99 billion. This amount is escalated, which means it does include inflation. So is that why the price tag is going up on less? We're paying more for less, Anne? It is, yeah. In Monday's newsletter, I said the big question was going to be whether they'd stick with the $3 billion request or scale it back. And it turns out the answer is yes, <laughs> they're doing both. They've had to scale it back because this is sort of part of the process. I was kind of confused about why they hadn't done this earlier, but apparently the county does all the escalation to make sure that it's consistent. So the county took the CMS numbers and ran it through, and some of those projects jumped by a lot, you know, 10% or more. And so they said, well, we're going to keep it. It's kind of like the gas prices. It's $2.997 billion, not quite $3 billion, but um, (laughs) it's 30 projects. They dropped, I think, eight 
replacement schools for elementary schools and two for middle schools. They've still got a lot of replacement projects. They've got uh, three full-size middle schools, a small high school uptown, and I think this one's going to be a little controversial, a regional athletic facility, because there's always that question of balancing classrooms versus athletics. So Crystal Hill, who's the interim superintendent, made that recommendation. You're telling me that the uh, school board took her up on that. No, they, they will decide um, on the 28th. They'll okay. vote on that. And then, of course, that will go to the commissioners who may or may not say, sure, let's put that puppy on the ballot. Okay. Well, answer me this. School enrollment has stagnated or dropped in recent years. We have nothing like the rampant growth that we experienced in the 90s and even the early 2000s. Why are new schools needed? Well, you know, growth is not consistent in different parts of the county, and they're projecting that there will be, you know, continued growth. But yeah, it's, and this project is much less heavy on new schools although many of the replacements also include expansions. So, you know, everything is a bit of a guess. The enrollment projections, the inflation projections, but they are assuring people that many of the schools are, are already at or above capacity and we need more classrooms. Construction consultant Dennis Lacaria says the replacements not only improve safety and learning conditions, but prepare for possible future enrollment growth. Those schools are going to be newer facilities and therefore also typically larger than the facilities that they're going to replace. So we will pick up capacity while addressing conditions. And School Board Chair Elise Dashu says the board would like more time to consider a plan presented last month that included changes to magnet programs and boundaries, among other things. Shamaria, are those, are those things tied in any way to this bond issue or is that just a separate thing they were talking about? Uh, about the actually, you might want to ask Anne. And I don't think they're okay. tied together when they were talking about those two things differently. Um, but they're, you know, magnets are part of those things where when you think about expansion stools and and things that are going to be on that bond referendum, you know, magnet programs can be impacted. Yeah, they've been calling it a comprehensive review and lumping it all together. And what they did was carve off the magnet changes that are specifically tied to building renovations in the bond project. And they're moving ahead with that and the rest of them, which you know, every change gets people worked up. The rest of them, they're going to take a little more time with. This bond package is $30 million, give or take a penny or two. Uh, that's the largest in state history. So 30, Three billion. Uh, th excuse me, billion. Thank you very much. Uh, it's hard for me to wrap my head around a number that big. It's just slightly <laughs> more than I make. Uh, <laughs> so... so um, where is the lottery money in all of this? Why do we need all this money? We got this gangbuster lottery going. I know, and that's really one of the challenges of the lottery is you see the ads and you hear about the big totals and you think they must be rolling in money. And CMS actually addressed that when they rolled this out and said, yeah, we do. I mean, the last annual report said that CMS got $11.6 million for construction in the most recent fiscal year. If that was all they had, they could build one elementary school every two to four years. That's not nearly enough to match the needs. Yeah. The board will vote on the bond package at their February 28th meeting and take whatever they decide to the Mecklenburg County Commission in their joint meeting on March the 4th. Is the clock ticking on whatever is decided if they want to get this on the November ballot? When do they have to have it done? Well, that's part of the timetable is that if okay. they approve this in March, then they have plenty of time. They have to go through a, a little more review process. But the big thing is going to be the campaign, getting people to you know understand what's on there. And I think CMS hopes to support it. 
And before we move on, there's this little question of books. The Moms for Liberty are at it. Uh, they're out there investigating what's in school libraries. And right now, Charlotte Mecklenburg School says the district will review thousands of high school library books after this group found one with explicit sexual content. And tell us more. Yeah, so a lot of us started our day yesterday with uh, some very graphic imagery graphic in terms of it's literally a graphic novel called let's talk about it the teen's guide to sex relationships and being a human and graphic in terms of it includes really explicit illustrated directions for giving yourself and others sexual pleasure I mean, it's you know these are images that you would not expect to find in a school library so Brooke Weiss the president of the Mecklenburg County chapter of Moms for Liberty said she saw an article about a challenge to this book in Alaska. So she went on the online school library catalog and looked it up and lo and behold, there it was at Palisades High School, which opened this year. Uh, she sent that to the board, the CMS officials, as well as media and posting it on social, social media. And CMS looked into it and says, yeah, that's not appropriate. So on the one hand, this book came into their possession along with 8,500 other books. It was kind of a big package of books that came. But I would think if the Dewey Decimal System is still in operation anywhere, uh, that, that they looked at each book and gave it a number, a catalog number. And in the course of doing that, wouldn't they have seen the content and decided that maybe this book among the 8,500 books is not appropriate? Well, they say that this this bundle, which was for new schools, and apparently that includes West Charlotte, which got a new building and therefore a new library, that these bundles arrived shelf ready, which means that volunteers could just plop them on the shelf. So what they're saying is that essentially, no, a librarian did not sit down and look at this. And the 8,500, I got to assume it's not 8,500 sex guides. I got to assume the 8,500 is the whole. So it seems like you could, I mean, there was one other that Brooks Weiss turned up, which is Sex Plus, Learning, Loving, and Enjoying Your Body. Big surprise. That also includes some pretty explicit material. I mean, it, like right, you say, with the Dewey Decimal System, it seems like you could kind of target those as ones that you might want to take a look at. Very quickly, uh, is there any pushback at all on removing these books? Don't know. They just um, respond. This came out yesterday morning, yesterday evening. They copied me on their response and what they're doing. We shall see. Okay. Well, she said she wouldn't if he did. Well, he is. And now this video announcement this week. So is Nikki Haley. Republicans have lost the popular vote in seven out of the last eight presidential elections. That has to change. It's time for a new generation of leadership. Some people look at America and see vulnerability. The socialist left sees an opportunity to rewrite history. China and Russia are on the march. They all think we can be bullied, kicked around. You should know this about me. I don't put up with bullies. And when you kick back, it hurts them more if you're wearing heels. I'm Nikki Haley, and I'm running for president. Music swell. So she has her uh, high heel bully shoes on, but the number one bully who went unnamed in that video, uh, ha has he reacted yet to this announcement? He, well, he has. He said that uh, he wished her luck. We know that that was a sincere remark. And then uh, I believe uh, an offshoot of his political arm said, you know, Nikki Haley essentially is only about Nikki Haley. So 
we begin. And Mike, as you know, that there's probably, you know, 10 people are going to end up in this field. So we're right. looking at another big brawl when it comes to nominating season. That video, uh, I edited it down for time. It was well over three minutes. But in it, she talked about being born and raised in South Carolina, not black, not white, but Indian. Uh, and she used that to defend American history, which she says those on the left see as evil. And then she goes on to talk about God and values, saying we must turn in that direction again and called Joe Biden's record unsurprisingly abysmal. Uh, and then this week, in front of a crowd of a few thousand at the Charleston Visitors Center, Nikki Haley moved that message forward. We're ready ready to move past the stale ideas and faded names of the past. And we are more than ready for a new generation to lead us into the future. She's polling at about 1% at last report among Republicans, uh, although the race is young and Trump is still very much the front runner here and the leader of the party. How surprised should we be then? that York County Republican Congressman Ralph Norman, who Trump backed in the 2022 midterms, has become the first person to step out and endorse Nikki Haley. Well, they are longtime political allies. So on the surface, what you say does make it surprising. But when you know the their political history uh, and their tight bonds, then it's not that surprising. Uh, although, he did stand up at that same rally, Mike, and describe Nikki Haley as America's Margaret Thatcher. So that was, you know, an attention-getting remark. The other thing, uh, just generally speaking, Mike, it's interesting that this campaign very much is wrapped up in uh, she is a, a female, she's a minority, but she doesn't think that that should matter. You know, the message is, uh, look, we this country will elect on merit and we don't need to talk about the past and past transgressions. Uh, that's an interesting message. We'll see if it resonates. And she uh, she touched on something that I think a lot of people are concerned about, Democrats and Republicans, progressives and conservatives, and that is how old the leadership of this country has become over the years. She says it's time for generational change, saying that it was time to stop, quote, trusting politicians from the 20th century. That seems like yesterday to me. Uh, she told the crowd in Charleston, in the America, I see the permanent politicians will finally retire. We will have term limits in Congress and mandatory mental competency tests for politicians <laughs> over 75 years old. Is that a slap at Biden, at Trump or both? Yes, uh, at, <laughs> at, at both. Uh, I, I thought that was interesting. I think there are people that might say they want competency tests for anyone over 18 that's running for elected office. One other thing, though, I want to mention, Mike, is that she in her video, she's, you know, she's obviously emphasizing the 2015 massacre in Charleston and the healing that she, that she says she was helped, uh, that she was involved with. But what was really interesting is that there was no mention of the flag and her involvement in taking down the Confederate flag which after saying that it was a hurtful symbol and divisive, she later came back and said that it was a, a symbol of heritage that had been marred only by the shooter. So that's going to be a big topic, I think, as she runs. Yeah, well, there's that flip-flop, and there's the, the, I guess you could call it a flip-flop, on the fact that she said she would not run for president if Donald Trump was running for president. Clearly, he is running for president, and so is she now. Uh, but, that, but she does bring managerial experience to this race. She was, after all, the governor of the state of uh, South Carolina. She brings 
international experience. She was America's ambassador to the United Nations. She brings that experience dealing with tragedy at the Mother Emanuel Church in, in Charleston. She did uh, take down the Confederate flag, which uh, was appreciated by a whole bunch of people, I suppose. How does that add up uh, to her strength as a candidate? Well, Got there's it. another governor, uh, Ron DeSantis of Florida, who is in the, the number two position in most polls. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, you see now behind former President Trump on the Republican side. So I think uh, if and when he enters, he'll be the governor and he'll kind of claim the governor managerial experience lane um, pretty, <clears throat> pretty readily. I do think it's going to be interesting to see in the North Carolina governor's race um, how that starts shaking out and how people start lining up there as different candidates emerge. Yeah, right now we have the lieutenant governor who I think is going to run and Josh Stein, the attorney general, who I think is going to run on the Democratic side. We have to take a break. We'll come back with more of the local news roundup in a moment at Charlotte Talks on WFAE. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, incorporating Mazda's customer-centric vehicle design by making the customer the center of business to create a better car buying experience. More at MazdaofSouthCharlotte.com. It's Charlotte Talks at the Local News Roundup on 90.7 WFAE and WFAE.org. I'm Mike Collins. Eric Spanberg joins us from the Charlotte Business Journal for the, lo for the Local News Roundup today. Shamari Morrison from WCNC-TV and from the WFAE newsroom, two superstars. And Doss Helms, our education reporter and senior editor, Eli Portillo. Thank you all for being here. Uh, like a car stuck in the always slow traffic on I-77 South, the Charlotte area transportation planners voted Wednesday to study whether it makes sense <laughs> <laughs> to partner with a private company to build the toll lanes on Interstate 77 from uptown to the South Carolina line. Now, I read in the paper this morning that I think it was the paper uh, this morning that we are going to have toll lanes in that stretch of highway. That's going to happen. The question is, how, the, how are they going to get there? Uh, and are, are they talking about whether it makes sense to partner here with Centra, Eli, or to partner with some other company? To build? Well, I thought Groundhog Day already happened, but we are rehashing <laughs> all the classic hits here in, in Charlotte. Um, <laughs> Expanded so, terms, toll lanes, you got it. So they are going to uh, build toll lanes on that stretch of 77 south of Uptown. They're not going to expand it with general purpose lanes. The question right now is whether to partner with Centra or have the state uh, Department of Transportation finance the toll lane construction here. What the state is saying is, hey, if you guys decide you want to uh, have us finance it and not go with a private company to build and operate these toll lanes, cool, but you're going to be waiting until the 2040s for them to open. So the question as it's being framed right now is kind of, do you want toll lanes that might cost a lot more, but get here a lot faster from the private company, maybe in 10 years? Or do you want uh, toll lanes that will probably cost less for drivers, but might take, you know, 20 plus years for mm. the state to build? This was not a uh, unanimous vote. And I think all of us who um, went through the I-77 North toll lanes um, debates in the last decade know that this is a setup for a really contentious local issue. Yeah, there were several no votes for members of the Charlotte Regional Transportation Planning Organization, representatives from the towns of Matthews, Pineville, Huntersville, Cornelius, Davidson, and Indian Trail voted no 
That pretty much sums up it all, I suppose, <laughs> except for Charlotte. Davidson Mayor Rusty Knox says he didn't want a repeat of the toll project, which is in existence right now north of town. But how many people would have actually been in favor of it uh, if they knew that they were going to pay $4 to go one exit on 77 North? I mean, I think that was kind of unimaginable. You know, prior to building those lanes, we and others kept asking the question, yeah, but what is it going to cost? And they would never tell us. Now, we th I think we know the reason why. Is that the reason why or they, or they just didn't know? I, I think you've asked one of those questions, Mike, that you know the answer to already, perhaps. <laughs> Is that a fair answer? Yeah. So can revealing the price ahead of schedule help these folks decide on which company to choose to build these? Because you know they're going to opt for oh, a yeah. company and not wait till 2040. Yeah, but I, I want to go back to Eli's point for, for any of us that uh, endured, I mean, had the opportunity to cover uh, the past decade of, of how we got the I-77 mobility lanes. The numbers change all the time in every aspect, what it's going to cost, uh, what the features are going to be, what the rates are going to be that drivers pay. So this is going to be a really slippery topic uh, for people to get their hands around. And uh, as Eli says, th this is going to be a fight. This is going to be a debate. Although there's no speeding between uh, the Moorhead Road exit and Clanton Road on I-77 because it's always stopped. <laughs> Where there is speeding, it is detected in many cases by these uh, radar and LIDAR guns that CMPD has been using. But we found out this week that for years, that equipment has been calibrated by technicians who didn't have the proper certification. How long have officials known about this and why has it suddenly become a topic? Eli. So the city said that they found out about this in October when a technician alerted them about, um, you know, the potential problems here with not everyone being certified. What the city has said is that since 2008, this is the process they followed for radar guns since 2018 for LIDAR. They think that the um, speed guns were calibrated properly. They're portraying this as more of a paperwork issue saying basically, hey, our folks did the work correctly, but they just, you know, didn't have the right paperwork, which they are legally required to have under the state law. So they're assessing how many uh, tickets could be impacted here. But um, this is a long running issue. And the city said that 170 out of the 230 speed devices they use um, had this issue where they were not calibrated by people with the right paperwork. So city officials have insisted, as you said, Eli, that these radar devices were properly set up, but maybe I'm misunderstanding what we're about to hear, but you can explain it to me after we do. The city's chief information officer, Renee Askew, says the problem, that's her word, stretches back for more than a decade. We must hold ourselves accountable to the fact that we did not adhere to the state requirements we believe uh, this issue started as an incorrect interpretation of the requirements back in 2008 and has become a standard practice. So how is it that the city believes everything is fine, but the city information officer apparently has a different opinion? Am I misunderstanding her quote there? So I think you can think about it as, uh, for example, say you had a home renovation project, an inspector came by, checked it out said everything's okay, and you found out later that that person was not a licensed home inspector, they might have done the work correctly. They might have correctly assessed your house, 
but they don't have the certification. They're not a licensed home inspector. You can't take anything they say to the county building department or whatever it might be. So I think that's kind of analogous to where we are now with this situation. And in any event, the Mecklenburg District Attorney is informing defendants' lawyers about the situation. What impact might that have uh, if these devices have, in fact, been miscalibrated or they can prove that? So they say the DA's office has said that police have other means. They don't have to have a radar gun reading to give you a speeding ticket. They can estimate your speed visually if they're following you and they know how fast they're going. They can do that. So they can legally issue tickets without these. But it's pretty easy to imagine a situation where if you get a ticket for going 10 miles over the speeding over the speed limit and the radar gun reading is thrown out and all you have is the police officer saying, I think visually he was going 10 miles. It would be pretty easy to, as a lawyer say, really 10 miles. You're sure it wasn't eight. You sure it wasn't 12. You sure it wasn't six. (laughs) Um, And Tony Messia with the Charlotte ledger had a good interview with George Lauren, kind of a defense lawyer, superstar locally who, um, you know, basically said defense lawyers and people who do traffic court stuff are salivating over this. Okay, Shamaria, back to the schools for a moment. You reported this week that CMS appears to be suspending black students at a disproportionate rate. What are the numbers? Well, just over 5,000 students um, since the school year started have been suspended between when school started in December. So you have about 5,500 students suspended. Of those 5,500 suspended, they say that just about 68% of those are Black students, right? But here's the problem. Um, 36% of overall students are Black students at CMS. So that's what they call disproportionate. And they want to basically bring the percentage of students and the percentage of what they represent of suspensions the same because it's disproportionate. So that's where their numbers lie. And they have a goal to reduce it slowly um, as the years go by. And, And they've been successful. And they say that they think they're on track based on current numbers. And I would guess that there are other options in some of these cases to suspension. Why are they choosing suspension? Um, Yes, and they identified that as a problem. They say there were two problems on why they believe that Black students are being suspended at these disproportionate rates. One is that there is not enough viable options for in-school suspension, and so they created these programs to keep the kids in school so that out-of-school suspension is like one of the last, last steps because it's really important to keep students in school because if you're not in school, well, obviously you can't learn. Okay. Uh, Some good news, some good news, bad news from Raleigh uh, this week. The state has a $3.25 billion surplus, Eric. The bad news is that the state has a (laughs) $3.25 billion surplus. Uh, Why the surplus? What does it mean? The surplus is, uh, is resulted from a couple of things. One is uh, stronger corporate profits, consumer spending still strong, uh, and income tax collections are better than expected. Uh, the rub here, Mike, is that uh, this now leads to a fight between the legislature and the governor over what to do with this additional money. And this is a long running debate. So traditionally, when we've had a surplus in many states, and, and including the Congress, Democrats like to take that money and put it in a rainy day fund or find ways to spend it. Republicans say, well, that means taxes are too high and they want to lower taxes. We have a Republican-controlled legislature. What are they likely to do in response to this? 
Ding, 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 ding. Yeah, I mean, that's 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 the fight, and that's likely. Uh, I, I think what you'll see is the usual differences of, you know, state employee and teacher raises, uh, reserves, capital spending, and what will happen is the Republicans who have more power as the legislature than the governor does will go much lower than what the governor wants, and then uh, they'll either cut taxes and put or put money in the rainy day fund or do both. Staying in Raleigh for a moment, the legislature made two decisions this week, at least uh, the le- well to override, to make it easier to override the governor's veto. And the Senate made a decision on guns. Let's talk about the vetoes first. Last year, the legislature did not have a supermajority. They couldn't override the governor's veto. This year, they are one vote shy in the House of being able to do that. And they could bring Democrats over or or. They could pull a fast one. And that's what they've kind of chosen to do. Talk about that. Yeah. And and of course, Mike, uh, the Democrats say this would be pulling a fast one. The Republicans say, no, we're just, uh, you know, lending a clear process (laughs) to what we will do. And what it what it would do is allow the House to vote to override the same day they receive a veto notice or the same day uh, that the Senate overrides a veto. Currently, you have to have a two-day notice. And remember this, Mike, on top of those uh, new rules, the two-thirds provision is dependent on how many people are actually in the room. So it's not it's not uh, taking the 120 or the 50, depending on which body you're dealing with. It's how many of those that are actually in the room voting. So that makes a big difference. So the bottom line here is that they were going to uh, make it so that if the House Speaker looked out and saw no Democrats in the room, that's when he would pounce and and vote on whatever they needed to do to override a gubernatorial veto. They've amended that. So it's a little of the advance notice is a little fairer. Is that right? Yes. That's, okay. Yes. Meanwhile, the state Senate passed a repeal of pistol permit rules. That, what does that mean? You, you can just get a, a pistol anytime you want to now? Uh, right now, the, the law is that a sheriff has to allow you to buy a handgun. This would repeal that. And the Republican argument is in part that this is an old Jim Crow uh, racist relic, they call it. And they say that sheriffs could could just, you know, for various reasons, deny that permit. Democrats uh, opposed because of, uh, you know, the many reasons that people are arguing about gun control. Okay, several districts around the area, school districts around the area and Shamari have changed their calendars or tried to to start school early. Some said that changed their minds after they did that because it goes up against state law. But there's a bill in the North Carolina House that would allow school districts to choose their own start dates, which could start as early as August 10th. Shamari, why the bill? Um, just because of what you said, schools have continually said, hey, we need to be able to start earlier for a number of reasons, the most popular, taking exams before they go on those long winter breaks and honestly being synced up with their local community colleges. But as Ann is probably going to tell you, this is not the first time we have seen that these bills come up in the House because House Speaker Tim Moore supports this. But on the other hand, we have the Senate and the Senate leader, not so much. Hmm. Okay. And the North Carolina State Treasurer, Dale Falwell, released a new study this week outlining executive compensation at the state's largest nonprofit health care systems. It showed rampant <laughs> raises for hospital administrators. I think uh, Novant CEO made $4.5 million in 2021. Gene Woods at Atrium, his compensation grew 473% over six years, bringing his 2021 compensation to $9.8 million. 
the combined CEO pay of all the state's hospitals equals the amount to pay 572 registered nurses, an average of $67,730 a year. And the state treasurer feels that they are rewarding leaders at these hospitals for generating profits ahead of community health. Has community health declined in any way? Well, I think if you look at a number of measures, uh, community health has declined. Now, the, the, the question is, how much of that would be the healthcare system's fault because you have so many other factors involved? But this has been a topic, uh, particularly with a nonprofit healthcare system such as Atrium here in Charlotte, that has been a topic that the state treasurer has been very focused on. He continues to focus on it. And this study uh, is another example of that. By the way, that study was with the state. Johns Hopkins and Rice University. And uh, the state treasurer, Mr. Falwell, uh, has characterized hospitals here in the state as cartels. Uh, As you say, it's been an ongoing topic for him. There are rumors that he might be interested in running for governor. Is this a campaign theme? (laughs) Uh, It certainly would be if he runs for governor. Absolutely. And finally... Charlotte FC, coming off their pretty darn good inaugural season, is getting ready for the next season, which I think begins February 25th. And Eric, you reported this week that the club and 2,000 of their season ticket holders celebrated by throwing a party for their laundry. That is exactly right. There is a New Jersey this year, and we're, pay, we're playing. There was a New Jersey last year and the year before, too, wasn't There's there? There's always a New Jersey, Mike. Oh, that's we the state. I'm buy. sorry. We need you to buy. Purple rain is what it's all about. We have purple added to the palette. And that's enough peas to send us on to February 25th and get ready to punt the soccer ball around the field. How's that? Actually, it looked like pink to me, not purple. But, well, okay, that's fine. Purple, <laughs> purple it is. Uh, you get the last word. Eric Spanberg, managing editor of the Charlotte Business Journal, here with Shamari Morrison from WCNC-TV and Doss Helms, education reporter for WFAE News, and Eli Portillo, senior editor for WFAE News. Thank you all for the hour. Support comes from WFAE members and Mazda of South Charlotte, focused on applying Mazda's customer-centric approach for vehicle design to car buying and servicing in order to create an experience centered around the customer. More at MazdaOfSouthCharlotte.com.